Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Now, when it comes to inspiration, sometimes we all need a little bit of help. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know I'm a passionate advocate for mentorship. In the first quarter of this year, I've mentored 76 different people, but I've realized that I just don't scale. Because of this, I've teamed up with a buddy to help more mentors and mentees find each other. So if you want to find out more, check out onenightinproduct.com slash mentor, where you can sign up to be a mentor, mentee, or both. That's onenightinproduct.com slash mentor. On tonight's episode, we talk about founding a company with the ultimate hippo. No, not the highest paid person's opinion, but the highest paid parents. We talk about scaling a company through community engagement, getting into that community in the first place, and how to maintain credibility when you get your triumphant exit and not being seen as a sellout. We also consider what comes next when it's time to do it all over again with a different product, for a different market, with a totally different community. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Anna Mast. Anna's a former telephone survey administrator, so the sort of person that would have terrified me in my first job. But luckily, like me, she escaped the bullpen and moved into tech and building products. Anna's a software developer and veteran community theatre performer. She's taken that passion for community in a different direction, building a successful startup with her mum, scaling it via community engagement, gloriously exiting, and now back for a repeat performance. Hi, Anna. How are you tonight? I'm great, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. It's good to have you here. So normally, I would start in the present day and start asking you all about the stuff that you're working on these days. And I'm definitely going to ask you about that. But your story has a beginning. And I think that beginning is interesting. So let's start with that beginning. And you were the co-founder of Boondockers Welcome. You founded that back in 2012 with your mum. But before we even talk about that, and excuse me for being a useless Brit, what's a boondocker? So the boondocks would mean sort of the backcountry, the, you know, where you're you have no electric hookups, no water. So a boondocker is an RVer. So in Britain, you might call them a, a camper van or, or yeah, a mobile home or something. That's right. So an RVer who camps without any hookups, that's what a boondocker would be. What problem then did Boondockers Welcome solve for those aforementioned boondockers in their RVs or their camper vans with their no power out in the boondocks? So RVers are plentiful and more plentiful and more plentiful these days. And camp sites are fewer and fewer between. And as uh, the RV numbers start to greatly surpass the number of campsites available, alternatives to camping in campgrounds became more and more desirable. And it turns out that lots of people don't even really enjoy camping in, in campgrounds. Most <laughs> RV campgrounds, if you've ever been in one, are more akin to a parking lot than to nature. So my co-founder is my mother, and she had been RVing for quite some time and had been exclusively really RVing in the boondocks in like actual free public land, especially in the southern United States. There's a lot of Bureau of Land Management land and, and public forests that you can camp for for free. So she had made a bit of a living for herself finding these free campsites. And Boondockers Welcome sort of was an extension of that, that connected RVers with other like-minded RVers who had private property to offer to RVers to spend the night on. So that kind of sounds a little bit like a kind of Airbnb for RV people, Airbnb. I don't know if that works, but something along those lines. Is that 
kind of the deal? Like you've kind of got a marketplace where people are listing stuff and people are going to go there and search for things that meet their criteria. Is it literally that or is it something a little bit more honed for that boondocker RV experience? It's definitely in that same vein, although Boondockers Welcome works more on what we call the couch surfing model rather than the Airbnb model, rather than our hosts actually renting out the space for RVers to come and park for a night or two. Our hosts are usually RVers themselves and are actually allowing other RVers to come and park for free, more for the social enjoyment of that than for any sort of financial gain. Right. So then are those host RVers still there too? And they kind of meet up and have a party? Or can you get two RVs on the same bit of land? I guess they've probably got quite big land down there. But like, is that the deal? Like meet up for a party? Yes, more times than not. Yeah, almost almost exclusively. The host is home and, you know, is is there to welcome an RVer. And most of the hosts own, you know, enough land to park their own RV and another one. Some of them, though, are in sort of more urban areas. You can come park in my, you know, rather small driveway in <laughs> urban southern Ontario in Canada, but you have to have a pretty small RV to fit in my driveway. <laughs> but yeah, most of the hosts are either RVers or former RVers. Lots of times people will have, you know, retired from their days on the road, but really enjoyed that the social aspect and sort of want to stay connected with the RV community and and they have space to welcome other RVers and RVers are really easy house guests in that they don't come in your house they bring their own house <laughs> but that's really interesting because it seems that alongside sort of airbnb and that kind of marketplace model it's also got a, a whiff of dating site about it if you've got to actually like the people that you're meeting up with and making sure not that they've just got a nice bit of land to park on but also that they're the kind of people that you want to tip a beer with right it's true. And I mean, some of our guests and hosts will be more social than others. And sometimes, you know, it, it very much will vary depending on the both sides of that equation. But sometimes you're just showing up and crashing for the night with the expectation that you yeah. have to take off in the next morning. But sometimes there's a whole lot of social interaction. And we've had hosts who, you know, take every single guest square dancing or who, you know, <laughs> invite them all to come and swim in their pond and, and enjoy their property. And they really enjoy showing off their property. So there's a really wide range. Oh, there you go. There's definitely a movie coming out of this at some point, I'm assuming. <laughs> but you are a software developer by trade originally, and you said that you started working at a startup. You obviously then got bored of doing that and started a startup yourself with your mum, as you said. So I guess the question is, as a developer, you know, building out your technical skills relatively early in your long-term career, like you've started Boondockers Welcome a while back now. So you decided to switch up and not just switch up and start a business, but start a business, as we said, with your mum. So I guess the question is, or the two questions are, why did you do that? And why did you do it with your mum? So I, I am a software developer by trade. I was an embedded software developer working for um, a startup that manufactured internet service provider hardware equipment. The genesis of the idea was essentially I was on a maternity leave here in Canada. We have 12 months of maternity leave. We're very lucky that way. And my mother was over visiting her new grandson and sort of had floated this idea as something that she was considering starting, although she at the time was thinking about trying to outsource the, the software development. And I suggested that, you know, it, it might be an expensive proposition. And why didn't I try to develop it? for us. And, and essentially, that was what we decided to go 50-50 from there and started building. But they say that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. 
So I have to ask, is it easy or hard running a business with your mum? Because that feels like the ultimate mum test, right? <laughs> Very different kind of mom test than the, uh, the book mom test, mom <laughs> test. It is definitely has its challenges, I think, for us. You know, my mother and I were quite close and we were able to be quite frank with each other. So that was a plus. And there is something to be said for sort of knowing that in our case, that that relationship was pretty rock solid and there was no real disagreement that was going to going to destroy that relationship, which, you know, in yeah. a, a more arm's length co-founder situation, I don't know that you'd necessarily have that degree of comfort. So I think there was a lot of benefits yeah. from that. But I mean, there's also drawbacks too. I'm sure that, <laughs> you know, her idiosyncrasies probably grated on my nerves more so than a stranger would because they've been bugging me for, you know, 45 years. So it's definitely a, a, a double-edged sword. Must be tricky working with a business partner who can literally send you to your room if she disagrees with you. I, I think she's lost that power quite some time ago now. <laughs> oh, that runs out. Brilliant. <laughs> Don't tell my kids. But did either of you have business experience before that? I mean, obviously, you're working in yourself in businesses, and I don't know what your mum's background was before she started doing this with you. But like, did either of you have experience running a business or anything along those lines? Or did you kind of have to learn that on the job as you were making this fantastic idea into reality? So my mom did have a considerable amount of experience running businesses, but more sort of bricks and mortar. She and my father, you know, they split up when I was quite young. But prior to that, they ran a bar, you know, a restaurant. Oh, and, there you food go. And beverage. That's the party sorted as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, uh, my joke is that the smell of stale beer is the smell of my childhood. But um, <laughs> the uh, she she had that experience, and then she continued to work in the food and beverage industry, sort of at a management level for years. So she had a lot of experience running that sort of a business. So from sort of a, a marketing standpoint, and you know, bookkeeping and management standpoint, she had a lot of experience in that. I didn't. I had no experience whatsoever with entrepreneurship before setting sail on this journey. But then, in addition to that. While my mom was traveling as an RVer, sort of before we started this, she had launched a, a series of travel guides that she created a you know a website and marketed herself and had done quite well with. She had a, a really significant following of fellow RVers who were looking for affordable camping options for them while traveling, you know, North America. So that was a, a real huge advantage for us when we started not only her business expertise, but this audience that she brought with her. This is almost like having an influencer helping you set up the business. So this is a completely different deal. This isn't just your mum. This is a, a famous RVer that's there as the figurehead of your business. Is it something like that? Pretty much. She, um, <laughs> she had been profiled in the, the New York Times and in, in sort of their, their frugal travel oh, wow. section. She, you know, she tells stories about going camping and people running into her and saying, oh, were you Marianne? You wrote those guides? So yeah, she, she really, oh, wow. in, in her niche, was definitely sort of a recognized name and face. As we all hope to be in our respective niches. But when it came to scaling the business, you've talked about the importance of community. Now, you're involved in community theater, as we discussed, and you're involved in a bunch of local community initiatives. So you're well aware of the general benefits of a group of like-minded people with common interests coming together around a thing. So what's the RV enthusiast community like? And how enthusiastic were they when you yourself kind of followed your mum into it and started trying to get involved with that? So 
my mother sort of knew that this would be something that the RV community would embrace. And she obviously had spent quite some time in that community. And I did not. I Prior to starting this, I had <laughs> never spent the night in an RV. I do now own one. So I kind of had to take her word for it, that this was something that would be appreciated. And we were somewhat naive. We didn't really like do the whole customer research that one <laughs> should do. But it turned out that she she did know what she was talking about. And, you know, in, in the RV community, there was already a pattern of people would meet, share a, a beverage around a campfire, and then, you know, trade addresses and say, hey, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, come park in my driveway. This was a very common practice. And there were, in fact, you know, each RV manufacturer would sometimes have like a guide of other you know, if you're an Airstream owner, here's a guide of other Airstream owners and their phone numbers and, and approximately where they live. And you can call them up and they'll let you come stay on their, on their property. And it was a very sort of ad hoc offline version of what we ended up creating. So, so there was definitely some precedent that this community could support and wanted to support this sort of extension into the digital world. Well, I was going to say actually around the concept of digital worlds and being digitally enabled in general. Like we're talking about people that at least for part of their time, spend their time off grid effectively, like not hooked up to anything, as you say. And that supposes that they've either got some kind of mobile internet, which maybe have been a bit trickier back then, and maybe is tricky in some of the locations that they'd be parking, or that they just wouldn't have anything. So did that make it harder in any way to like, offer services that whilst obviously they could book stuff when they're at home off in a, in a nice comfortable room but like were there any services that you had to try to deliver whilst they were out and about or did you just kind of leave them at the doorway and you know they went off and did whatever they did I think that when we first started in 2012 there was definitely not as much connectivity as there is now people didn't you know yeah. have their little wi-fi hotspots that they carried with them everywhere <laughs> it's like you might have a cell phone with some data coverage but it wasn't nearly as readily available as it is now. So I feel like we really actually grew with that technology. It really sort of helped us that we, we grew slowly, but in step with that. But yeah, that definitely does factor in, you know, sometimes people will be off grid without any reception, depending on where you are for days at a time. And we, you know, eventually introduced the ability to send messages via SMS because sometimes SMS would have coverage whereas data wouldn't. And those were things yeah. that we sort of slowly had to add on because, yeah, they were necessary to support people who are geographically remote. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess a follow-on question from that is like whether there were any surprising use cases that you were able to support as that explosion of mobile internet happened and as all these different use cases potentially became more feasible because of course you know everyone's got four five six seven eight g whatever it is that we're on now i mean i'm sure not everyone there's going to be dead spots somewhere but like did it enable any cool use cases way down the line maybe later in the journey for the journey of the company or did you kind of stick to for want of a better word the basics and just try to make those better i think we mostly stuck to the basics i think we did eventually get to the point where a mobile app was really necessary at the beginning. We were able to sort of get by with just a website and or a, at least a mobile-friendly website. And yeah, we shortly before we were acquired, actually, I finally sat down and because I am the dev, I, I learned React Native and wrote a wrote a mobile app, my very first mobile uh, app. 
there you which go. turned out okay. So that, you know, that was, again, it was a case of us growing with the product and the market. Talking about markets, were you primarily focused then on Canada where you live? Or I mean, you've talked about South US, for example, as well. Like, so was it Canada plus the US or did you go even wider than that? Like, how grand did your ambitions get before you exited? So we, shortly before we exited, we had about 2,800 hosts, almost all in North America, although there were a smattering in Europe and Australia. Most of those were people who had traveled in the North America on vacation and then gone home and sort of just offered a spot, sort of reciprocal. Uh, some of them did get some guests, though. But yeah, most of them in North America, <laughs> the, the vast majority, it was about 25% Canada and 75% of our hosts in the US. So not too bad a distribution. And then probably about 90% of our members were actually based in the US. So most Canadians, if they're RVing, are heading down south anyway. <laughs> yeah, don't go north. It's cold up there. But I will say that community building and community engagement, it does sound like a bit of a long game. So you've got to, obviously, as you did, kind of get involved in that community, build some credibility in that community. You've got to engage with that community, build awareness of what you're doing for that community, start to put advocacy and fans within that community. And then you've got to kind of keep that going because if you don't use it, you're going to probably lose it. Now, I know that you and your mom didn't take funding. Like you bootstrapped this all yourself and you kind of took it yourself from zero to sold. Do you think that you would have been able to play that long community driven game if you were VC backed and had this intense pressure to deliver super growth, super growth, super growth? For us, for the business model that we chose, I mean, firstly, VCs weren't interested. It, it, it's a- <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't see the bigger picture. Uh, true. That changed once the pandemic came around and, and sort of <laughs> RVing took off and other, you know, investment yep. opportunities dried up a bit. But when we were sort of really starting to double down and, and work harder on the business, we actually went through like a, a small accelerator here in town. And, you know, there was like a speed dating with investors <laughs> opportunity and none of them were interested, which was fine. It wasn't really our goal with going through that, that accelerator. We weren't really interested in raising funding. But part of that was our business model was, you know, because we worked on a membership model, right? So I mentioned our hosts don't take any payment, but our, the guests essentially pay an annual membership to us in order to have access to our hosts. So that model means that, you know, the lifetime value of our individual members was not really all that high. And the VCs weren't particularly interested in that model. But in addition to that, because our hosts weren't earning anything, there was always for us a, a real emphasis on making sure that we didn't grow too fast, right? Yeah. If you're trying to push the guest side up too high without necessarily keeping our, our hosts at that same ratio, then we were always worried that the whole thing was just going to topple over. We would have hosts who would feel overwhelmed. And yeah, certainly as we grew in more popular areas, like if you were a host in Florida in the winter, you would probably be overwhelmed with requests. We, we did have a lot of hosts there, so it was good, but sometimes <laughs> it felt like we had some who were busy every night of the year, and some of them wanted to be, and that was fine. But it was always important to us to make sure that we scaled it sort of in, in a way that kept our hosts happy, because at the end of the day, it was their generosity that allowed us to grow this business. Now, some of those VCs, maybe some of the more tiresome types might sit there and 
dismiss you as a kind of a lifestyle business because you're not going for that kind of hockey stick growth and all the funding and shooting for the moon. Like, do you think that these people are, I mean, you obviously didn't have a great experience trying to persuade them this was a good idea, but do you think these people are wrong about that sort of thing? I guess for me, the question is always, what's the ultimate end goal, right? If, if the end goal is yeah. to try and grow your, your capital as fast as possible, then yeah, okay, obviously hockey stick growth is the point. If the goal is to grow a business into something that is profitable and can provide value, then the hockey stick growth is really the only real need for growth is to make sure that you're not stagnating and that nobody's going to come out and rip the carpet out from under you. Yeah. And also making a bunch of white middle-class dudes quite rich <laughs> as well, I guess, is all, always a bonus for them as well. It's about time they caught a break. But you did get acquired at some point fairly recently. I uh, can't remember exactly when, but I guess one thing that could happen in a situation like that when you're getting acquired and when you do have that big community backing and you've been quite embedded with that community and probably made a lot of friends in that community, they could maybe sit there and quite angrily think that you've sold out, betrayed them or something along those lines because you've taken a bunch of money, the business isn't yours anymore, maybe don't even trust that the new owners are going to be the community-minded people that you are. Now, I'm not making any judgments on your new owners, but that could be something that the community thinks. So did you have like a lot of reassuring to do or a lot of PR to do or were they kind of behind you when you announced this? So we were approached by our acquirers. We hadn't gone out seeking acquirers. We hadn't looked necessarily to sell. And part of the reason that we decided to go ahead was because the acquiring company was another company in the space that our community was already really familiar with. The, our acquirers are called Harvest Hosts. They have a very similar business model. They offer overnight camping at alternative locations. These Their locations are, are businesses like wineries and breweries and museums. And they also work oh, on wow. a very similar membership model, right? It's an annual membership. And half of our guest members were already also members of theirs. So right. I think if we had been approached to be acquired by any other company, it would have been a very different decision and a very different approach we would have had to take. And, and, and we would have had to think a lot harder about it. But because we were approached by Harvest Hosts and they were such a good fit, and we had you know our own reasons for thinking that maybe it was time to move on. My mother is, if I'm 45, she's uh, definitely older than that. So <laughs> she, was, she was ready to move on and sort of be retired. So that was, I think, a really easy part of that whole thing is, is knowing that we were selling to a company that our community already embraced and would we, we had a great deal of trust that they would maintain the integrity of that community because of that. Well, we'll watch this space, but I'm sure they will. No hate mail in the post then coming from these far-flung places so far. No, and they, they did an amazing job of working sort of, I stayed on for six months after the, the acquisition as a transition, and we worked together to sort of yeah. craft the messaging to make sure that all of our, our community members really felt comfortable and that they knew that the new owners were going to maintain sort of the same integrity that we had. There you go. But now you have exited and you've taken that money and you've gone and started a new thing. Now, I know that you're currently in landing page mode and you're getting ready to launch, but the thing that you're about to launch is called, I believe, SubscribeSense. 
which is more of a marketing technology type thing. So a bit of a shift away from those RVs and little stoves and stuff that they heat their beans on. So it's not quite the same audience, not at all the same use case. But was there a particular problem that you maybe identified during your time at the previous company or that had kind of come up in passing when you were talking to all those other entrepreneurs that you probably had to speak to? Was that something that you then identified a problem there and then decided to go and build a company to do that? Or was there some other reason that you decided to go into that direction? No, it was exactly that. It was the age old start a company and then you'll figure out a problem that you want to start another company to solve. <laughs> yeah. So with Boondockers Welcome, we had a pretty you know long sales funnel. Lots of people would discover our product, but not be ready to buy. So we had your pretty typical sign up for our newsletter pop up on the homepage. And we had a, a pretty popular newsletter. We sent out a newsletter every week that was really just a list of the most recent hosts who had signed up and people would open it, scan through and say, oh, and, and some of the hosts were amazing and they all had photos. And it, it was it was really, it sold itself. It was, it was an amazing <laughs> marketing tool. But one of the things that I discovered quite late in the process really was that we had a double opt-in newsletter. You had to confirm your email after submitting it on our homepage. And one of the things I discovered was that only about 60% of the people who actually put their email address into that first form completed that double opt-in step. And I know, especially, I mean, given our demographic, we're not talking necessarily about the most technically savvy people. They're not necessarily going to be checking their spam folder or knowing exactly where to look to try and find those emails. So SubscribeSense essentially tries to reduce that friction and help increase that confirmation rate for double opt-in newsletters. Uh, sounds like a very useful service, but the marketing community is out there as well. Like it's something that does exist. It's all over Twitter and all over LinkedIn and all over these marketing conferences that I keep seeing advertised. So have you kind of gone down this community approach again and you're trying to engage on a community level with the marketing people that you've reached out to or are you kind of taking a different tack and a different route to market this time? I'm working my way in that direction. Similar to the RVing community, I didn't have a footprint in the RVing community, whereas my mother did. But this time, I'm a solar founder, and uh, I, I haven't really been much in the marketing community before now. So I'm, I'm slowly starting to integrate my way in there. Right. But I've found a, a, a few different communities that I've started to participate in. Corey Haynes has a great swipe files community that I have become a member of and have been participating in, and I'm really enjoying that. And he's one of the people who actually, I had some great conversations with him as I was trying to determine, you know, whether or not this product really had legs. And that's been a really great, just great way for me to validate my ideas. And getting into the Reddit communities. There's lots of them there. So I am definitely trying to continue to use community to help move this forward, but it's going to be a little bit of a different game for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, like, are there any things that you're doing differently this time from the off, like based on your previous experience, things that maybe didn't work out first time and you've decided to skip those this time? Or is everything so different that you're kind of having to work out what works as you go in this new ball game? It's very different. A B2C marketplace is essentially what we built. Not A bootstrapped B2C marketplace is a, a very difficult beast and not one that I would ever recommend anybody try. And it was only out of naivety that we really attempted it in the first place. 
So now I'm looking at a B2B SaaS, which is, I mean, there'll be some crossover, but a lot of it is new. Luckily, I have a lot yeah. more resources and just knowledge sort of at that space. So I don't feel like I'm starting from total scratch. Uh, you've got all that RV money under your bed now, haven't you? So you can spend some of that on, I don't know, advertising campaigns or something. It's true. It's, it's, I mean, I don't plan <laughs> to pour a whole lot of my personal money into it, but whereas, you know, we, we literally spent almost nothing on Boondockers Welcome at the beginning until we were making money. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a little more luxury this time around. Well, there you go. I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl ad sometime soon. But what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone then who was maybe trying to start their own company up, either as a technical founder or whatever their background, someone that's maybe taking those first steps and maybe they've identified a community either that they're in or that they've seen and they want to be in. Like what advice would you give that person, that founder to try and really help make a good, I guess, impression and the best use of that community to help them to scale that business to the level that they need it to? I mean, I think the answer always comes down to providing value and yeah. providing customer service that that is beyond reproach. I think that was the two the two aspects of Boondockers Welcome that really helped us grow was just word of mouth because of the value and the support that we gave. And that certainly translates to any business, B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter. As long as you are providing value and and answering customer requests and, and participating with your customers, not just telling them what they need, but listening to them. <laughs> as long as you're as long as you're doing that, you're you're going to be able to build a community that is excited about what you've got. And that's really, I think, the best thing that you that we had at Boondockers Welcome was, you know, a group of fans that were willing to praise us from the rooftops, from the RV tops. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure how safe it is to get up there, but you know. They're usually flat at least. You're less likely to fall off. Yeah, but they've got all those like sunroofs and like nobles and vents and stuff on, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. A lot of them do. Some of them are big enough though <laughs> that you could go up there and like bring your chair and open it up and have a nice little uh, sunday. <laughs> Play a game of hockey on the roof or something. And going back to then the concept of boondockers, there's apparently a saying, and I say apparently because I just saw it when I looked it up. Pack it in, pack it out which seems to me to be kind of almost like a leave the campsite as you found it type analogy. Is there an analogy that we can take from that, like bearing in mind that as product people, we're supposed to kind of make a tiresome business analogy out of everything. Is there any kind of analogy to the pack it in, pack it out, any kind of equivalent in startup land? I don't know. I think most of us, if we're building products and businesses, our goal is to leave a mark as opposed to <laughs> leave nothing but footprints, take so nothing set fire but photos. To the trash can, right? <laughs> I think one analogy, though, would be sort of just the, the the circle of life of nature, and that I try to bring that into my participation in sort of the the founder community. You know, now that I've had a successful exit, I'm trying to make sure to support other people who are sort of coming up and, and having those same questions. And I think that circle of life is something that that is important and, and can continue to be brought forth. So we'll be looking for the next Canadian Simba to be held aloft with you supporting them in the <laughs> Canadian startup community. Exactly. Hope you've got someone in mind. I'll invest in them later. And where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about SubscribeSense, find out about your release, or maybe talk about community building, RVs, or get a ticket to your next theater performance? 
<laughs> so you can find SubscribeSense at SubscribeSense.com. You can sign up for our beta, which will be launching soon. And if you want to just connect with me to talk about all things startups, I am easily found on Twitter at schoolgirl, which is spelt S-K-U-L-E girl, which we call the metric spelling. <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, I'll link that into the show notes and hopefully you'll get a few people come across and try and find out a little bit more. Well, that's been a fantastic chat and obviously really great to hear your story and some of the lessons that others can learn from your experience in building a company and community engagement. Obviously, we'll stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jason. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.